Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 37. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Christina. How are you today? Great. How's yourself? Uh, myself is excellent. Uh, I'm happy to be here, and I would like to welcome everybody to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your host along with uh, Christina as we travel this week and each week through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today we're going to search for another version of optimal health. <laughs> it's getting more and more exciting, I think, for me, all the different possibilities and the magic of the medical tour. Oh, it's it's amazing. It, but, you know, I just feel like we, we never, we just like touch the tip of that iceberg and we never really delve deeper into it. You know, so we have to bring all these people back. Yeah, that's right. We're going to have to make it a 17 hour show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would cover it for us. You know, uh, we always talk and people always talk about medicine as uh, the science and art of medicine or the art and science of medicine. And it's obvious what we talk about with the science, but most people, when they talk about the art of medicine, they're usually referring to uh, the bedside manner or the personality of the physician or the way the physician can work with people to make them feel better about uh, what's going on with them, whether uh, an illness or a surgery or something like that. Really? I always think of it, I always think of it as the alchemy, like, like what the doctor has to balance and mix and, and bring together to, you know, create. That's true. And that, that also is really part of the art of uh, medicine. But today we're going to speak with someone whose specialty is plastic and reconstructive surgery. And this mm -hmm. is one of the most uh, scientific and artistic uh, specialties, I believe, in all of medicine. And today, our very special guest and my very good friend is Dr. Howard Gross. So we're going to be speaking with him, and I would like to introduce him to you now and to all of our global viewers. Welcome, Dr. Howard Gross. Hi, pleasure to be here. Hello, Dr. Gross. Welcome to our show. Thank you for honoring our community. Pleasure to be here, Christina. How are you? Great. Thank you. We're very excited. <laughs> oh, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> and now Howard, you can help us put our show together too you know <laughs> make it look better at the end absolutely yeah that's a good idea howard usually as the uh medical guide i like to give our global viewers uh, uh somewhat of a path that we're going to take and as always okay. i try i try to start with learning about the uh person the practitioner, how, why you went into medicine, what made you enjoy healing, uh, what were your influences. Then we'll get into a little bit of the training that you go through so that we can teach people uh, a little bit. If somebody is trying to decide if they want to be a doctor or they're in medical school right. already, you know, and then the special training for what you did. And then okay. we'll start talking about some uh, specific specifics of your specialty and maybe get into a little bit of some of the newer technologies that are out there and maybe we can look at some of the things that are out there and decide if they're good or not so good. How's that okay. sound? Let's, let's do it. Excellent. So where did uh, young Howard uh, start his process and, and what were the influences that got you to decide to become a healer? Well, I wish I could say I was one of those people who knew at a young age I wanted to heal people, but the truth is that I just basically followed education and it led me here. Um, I went to college, uh, I was an economics major oh. and um, had no idea myself that I would end up in medicine at all. And then eventually I met people who interested me in really the science, not so much the healing, just chemistry and biology and took a couple of classes and before I knew it I was in medical school and <laughs> at that point I thought maybe I'd be a pediatrician. I like kids. And then again, you get exposed to everything. You see a little bit of this, a little of that. I like surgery. Went into surgery first, like trauma, thought I'd do trauma. But again, you get exposed to things. And I just kept following what I liked. And I ended up here. Hmm. 
that's an interesting path. Uh, you know, so many of the people we speak to start the other way. Oh, I knew I wanted to be a doctor from the age of, but this was great economics. And, uh, did you I, have any, uh, art, uh, desires? Were you a creative person in any way? I was creative. I never, not in a, uh, any organized sense. I mean, I was always the one who pinstriped my friend's cars when we were growing up. <laughs> and uh, I would install the car radios and speakers and CBs. I don't know if many of your listeners know what CBs are, but we used to have CBs in our cars. Um, so I didn't really take art classes or even do any art that I displayed, but I, I guess I enjoyed it. And um, like I said, just follow things. And I guess when I finally got into plastic surgery, I finally realized I put everything together, but again, it wasn't anything I was chasing from the beginning. Hmm. And that's why I tell my kids stay in school because you never know what you're going to like. I actually, when people tell me they knew what they wanted to be when they were six, I, I'm suspicious because how do you know what you want when you're six? Yeah, I, I agree. I had to wait till I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> you were the late bloomer, Glenn. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, it was being back in the East Coast and, you know. Uh, that's the way that goes. What, right. uh, what influenced you to move into plastic surgery? Well, I, I remember, um, actually one of the things I remember was in, um, residency when I was going to plastic surgery rotation and we were working on some case and, uh, the plastic surgeon sat the patient up with a breast reconstruction and said, what do you think of that? And everybody had an equal input. It wasn't pure science. It was everybody looking at it with an aesthetic eye to see, well, a little bigger on the left or a little too full on the right, or maybe that scar over there can be a little. And I realized, wow, this is more than just, you know, the guy on top making all the decisions. This is, how does it look? What do you think? And I really mm. like it. Do you think that comes into play in other uh, aspects of medicine, other specialties? Well, I can't imagine uh, a radiologist looking at an x-ray, a chest x-ray, and asking, well, what do you guys think? <laughs> and, you know, um, I think there's a right answer in a lot of medicine. And in plastic surgery, there's a right answer a lot of the times. But a lot of plastic surgery, at least certainly in aesthetic surgery, there's a lot of more subjective pieces where you're looking at it. And it's a matter, some could be a matter of style, or some could be just a matter of your own personal aesthetic. Um, but I like that. I like that not every plastic surgeon is going to come up with the same result. A perfect result to one person might not be a perfect result to another. And also a lot of what I do, I might get something what I think is not a good result, but it's what the patient wanted. They particularly have a style that I may not agree with, but my job is making them happy. It's easy to make me happy, but I have to make them happy. Mm. Tell us for a moment just the actual training, the number of years and the concepts that go into training. So anybody that's trying to figure out if they want to do that or for people that just don't know what kind of training uh, a plastic surgeon goes through to do the things that they do. Just give us a brief. Uh, OK, let me preface it by saying don't let it scare you. It's a long road. It's a lot of years. It's a lot of crap. Um, <laughs> at the end, it's fantastic. but. You know, you have to go through college, obviously, and then medical school, which is four more years. And then after medical school, I chose a path, again, because of the way I went into it. I went into general surgery and did a full general surgery residency, which was five years, then a plastic surgery residency, which is two more, and then a cosmetic surgery fellowship, which is another year. And then you first get started, and it takes a couple of years to, you know, get a practice going and uh, be busy. But um, it's a long road. Uh, there are shorter cuts now to plastic surgery. They've combined some uh, training. So instead of the eight years I did, you might cut that down to six. But still, it's a long way. But at the end, you always have to think about what the guys who are finished are doing and not so much what you're doing at the moment as a resident. So you may not love starting IVs as an intern, but if you keep looking ahead, keeping the eyes on the prize, as they say, you, you'll get there. Mm. Oh, that's very nice. It's a good way to put that because it is a long road. People don't understand sometimes that when they're seeing the plastic surgeon, this is a person that's really dedicated their entire life practically to learning. I know. I started uh, practice 
when I was 35 is when I finally started working in practice, and I had a friend who was retired already. So, yeah, you get a little bit of uh, delayed gratification. That's true. <laughs> Howard, we call it plastic and reconstructive surgery. That, that seems to be the name. Is there a difference between the two? And if so, what is the difference between plastic and reconstructive surgery? Actually, they just changed the name. They no longer call it Plastic and Reconstructive, and the society changed their name from the Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons to just the Society of Plastic Surgery because there really is no difference. Oh, okay. Um, people used to think that plastic was the cosmetic, and so it was aesthetic and reconstructive surgery, and that, I guess that's one way to look at it. But plastic surgery, uh, one question I get asked a lot, I don't know if you're interested, is why plastic surgery? Why, why is, did they use plastic? And the truth is that uh, there were plastic surgeons years before there was ever plastic. And plastic and plastic surgery are both derived from the same root, which is a Greek word for mold. Plasticos means to mold. So plastic surgeons were molding the body before they ever came up with this material that they needed to call something. And because it was moldable, they also called it plastic. Oh, that's a great answer and gives a very nice uh, picture to it. Christine, it sounded like you had a question there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, nowadays when you hear the word plastic, you know what, what goes through everybody's mind is that, well, is it BPA free? Is that, you know, it's like, <laughs> what are we putting in our bodies now, right? But <laughs> so it, it, it is um, how that word plastic has morphed and and then to hear you say, you know, it's basically derived from that word. I would think that they would change it to like aesthetic surgery or something like that. Uh, that's a hard question. I mean, um, not really a particular case. I mean, I've done a lot of, uh, I guess, the reconstructive cases are the ones that might stick out in your mind more. Um, particular patients who were particularly happy or particularly distraught and came through it at the end. But uh, And then the cosmetic patients are more, you're making them happier. You're trying to get to a place where where they weren't before, whereas the reconstructive, you're trying to get them back to where they were. Um, no particular case I'd want to talk about, though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, is there anything in plastic surgery that frustrates you? Well, the plastic surgery, um, the surgery is fantastic. And, you know, you have complications. Anytime you're willing to do enough surgery, you're going to get some complications and you have to deal with them. So I would not say that complications are a frustration. They're part of what you do. And if... If there was no such thing as a complication, there would be no such thing as a good plastic surgeon because a good plastic surgeon is someone who knows how to deal with and get through those pla those complications. I would say the frustrations, and Glenn, you would know, is ultimately it's a business, and running a business is the most frustrating part. I mean, if you can come in, see patients, talk to them, do a surgery, see their results, that would be the greatest. But ultimately, you do have to worry, you know, things cost money and there are things you want to do on people who if they can't afford it and you try to work with them. But ultimately, the frustration of the realities of medicine as a uh, an economic endeavor, it, it does make it something that uh, is more difficult to deal with than you'd like it to be. Do you think your economics uh, background helps? Um, no. <laughs> 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 I wasn't counts. I was an economics major. You know, I uh, the economics of it is usually the lack of money, and all the knowledge in the world isn't going to get you to, isn't going to help a patient who wishes they can have X, Y, and Z performed and can't afford it. Um, I, we do do our best. We make as many concessions as we can. I've done things for free many times, but you can only do that so often. Right. <clears throat> That's true. Uh, I want to get into uh, some of the products that are out there uh, these days that uh, we talk about. People are uh, inundated with anti-aging creams and anti-wrinkle creams and 
all of the different things out there. Do any of them work? I would say they all work. I would say that something is better than nothing. And almost any cream out there, just the carrier alone. I mean, a, a cream has a carrier and it has whatever active ingredient they say is going to do a good job. And anything at all, just the carrier, just the moisturizer part is probably very good. So something is better than nothing. And then these specific ingredients, anything that has a retin-A or a glycolic, and um, they do help. So um, they are working around the margins. They're not going to make a night and day difference. And sometimes I am frustrated with watching an infomercial on a Sunday morning and watching results that I know can't be real or at least not typical. Um, but I do think they're good, all these products. I think we're using something is a good idea. Rather than nothing. Something rather than nothing. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Um, if you take good care of your skin, that is far and away the most important thing you can do. Uh, do you think this is something that people should start out with more as a preventive process? You know, kids should start using uh, anti-aging creams or wrinkle creams at some point as a prophylactic preventive thing? Or do you wait until you see the first wrinkle and then start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from a wrinkle perspective, I don't think preventing them is the way to go. Um, most wrinkles are from muscle activation, and um, you will get wrinkles around your eyes if you smile a lot, and there's no reason not to smile a lot. So get your wrinkles. There, you've earned them. But <laughs> as far and uh, of course, not smoking. That's a, a terrible wrinkle creator that wrinkles are the least of your problems. So anybody out there who smokes, I don't know how much of your audience, Christina, would smoke. You seem to have a, a very educated, smart, healthy audience, but don't smoke. Um, that's a terrible thing for your skin and for the wrinkles around your mouth. Mm. But I would think um, other than sunblock and general moisturizer, you wouldn't need any kind of peels or glycolics when you're younger. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what about, what about facial exercises? I mean, you know, because the yoga community, they, they believe in that. But then I also have the community that doesn't do yoga, but they're always worried about it. They go, well, you know, do those facial exercises really help? And, and a question came in if, um, if exercises would help prepare, like, uh, prepare a person uh, before any kind of a facelift or anything like that. Well, I've seen um, proponents of facial exercises. And again, I don't see the science behind that. Um, one of the big problems with aging would be the neck area. And uh, if anybody's seen the two bands that go down the center of the neck, those are the borders of muscles. And they start going up with age because those muscles shorten and get uh, thicker and, and they start hanging down. And I, I honestly don't see how exercising those muscles would do anything but make it worse. Now, I'm not <laughs> facial exercises, but anything you do to move facial muscles creates wrinkles, so I don't see how it would prevent them. Mm. Mm. Uh -huh. Well, okay. <laughs> I guess I'm going to be dealing with a lot of wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> We, we talk about the muscles that are uh, in the face and the ones around the eyes and around the nose and around the lips. And some of them are pretty small muscles. And I remember hearing at one time that people that vigorously wipe their faces with a towel, say after a shower, can over time loosen these muscles. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like we should be patting our faces instead of rubbing our faces around the eyes. Does that make any difference? That's the first I've ever heard of it. Uh, Bulletin. I think, I think that there's something to be said for um, some people getting wrinkles when they lay on the side of their face every day when they're sleeping and maybe, but I can't imagine patting it with a towel. Mm -hmm. While well, saying instead of rubbing with the towel that you would loosen the attachments, the insertions or the origins of the muscles and therefore loosening them over time. I don't think so, Glenn, because, you know, when I do a facelift, I'm dealing with those attachments and they're very, very tight. So I don't think that's going to be a problem. Excellent. So we won't have that as a health tip. <laughs> <laughs> don't pat your face just go see Howard. 
So, so Howard, I've heard, I mean, I've, I've known people who've had facelifts, uh, uh, many, many, many. And um, I've heard that after a prolonged period of time that they almost have to go in and have it lifted again. Is that right? Well, I mean, if somebody has a facelift today, they will start aging tomorrow. And it just uh, depends upon your tolerance for imperfection. Now, I tell patients, some people ask me, how long will it last? And I, my, my response usually is, well, it, it will last forever. What we're doing today is going to last forever, but you're going to start aging again. And, you know, you will have some facial laxity again. Now, usually, if you start at point zero and you're brought up to a, a level that you like, you're not going to go back to zero again. Those mm-hmm. bands, heck, if you fix those, that's usually forever. A brow lift is usually forever. But one of the things that happens as you age is you lose volume in your face, you, the fat pads and the cheeks and then around the eyes. So my uh, sense is that if you have a facelift you know, in your 50s, we're not talking about someone who does it early in their 30s or 40s, but if someone has a facelift in the mid to late 50s, they may need to augment it later on, maybe with some fat injections or something else. But a full facelift, most people don't have to repeat it. Now, there are exceptions. We all know movie stars who get one, two, three facelifts, and they start looking a little odd as they go. But um, the changes you get from surgery are real, but it doesn't stop the clock. It just sets it back a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And And what about the neck? Well, again, the, the neck is something I think that usually you have to do once. And once you, those two muscles in the front of the neck that hang down and create those bands, once you fix that, once you sew them together and recreate the corset down below the neck, that's usually something you wouldn't have to do again. Mm. But this, in the area around the jawline, you know, it, it could l- loosen again, but usually not back to where it started before. But, you know, if we're talking about someone who has no tolerance for any laxity, they may be back. But <laughs> that's most people. I like that concept, the tolerance of imperfection. You need some. We all need a tolerance for imperfection. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, what, are, what are the different things that are out there? Tell us a few different things that are out there other than the scalpel that can change a person's look or something? Well, actually, you know, in the last, well, I've been in practice for 20 years and um, going to conferences year after year, it's really been tilted so much more now toward technology. And every year they get a little bit better. They're still not perfect, but lasers and various pseudo laser light treatments are very much part of um, plastic surgery now these days. And, uh, for instance, there's um, resurfacing the skin, which used to be purely in the realm of chemical peels. Now chemical peels are rarely done anymore. So it's always, almost all some kind of a laser resurfacing, whether it be a, uh, a very light laser resurfacing or a very deep laser resurfacing, which is almost surgery because you get an open wound. But technology is very much a part of that. that and they're working on but haven't perfected although they try to sell them all the time, are skin-tightening lasers. Lasers that will go through the skin, not damage the surface, but somehow affect underneath and get a tightening effect without a scalpel at all. And um, they're not there yet. Uh, You can get changes in the margins, a little bit of tightening that tends to go away, uh, but that is the holy grail for technological uh, progress. Is that is the concept there that you create an inflammatory process deep in and then the scarring down pulls it together or is there something else going on? That's exactly right. Um, there, there's some skin tightening on the surface by creating a wound that will, you know, uh, for your listeners, any wound as it heals will contract. So, Glenn, if you create that wound on the surface, it'll contract and get a little tightening. But they're trying to protect the skin and just get it some kind of a wound subcutaneous so you'll get some contraction there and they do that with various types of lasers electric charges um heat where they cool the surface and try to get the heat delivered deep ultrasound or radio frequency waves 
So but when somebody comes into you and they have a few wrinkles around their face and they're thinking of these, they're, they're going in for a consult and you have many options for them. Do you start small and say we could do this or this or uh, do you – is it a buffet that they can choose? How do, how do you go with, through a consult with somebody for uh, somebody that has a face that they, that they have a low tolerance for imperfection? Well, it just depends. There, uh, it depends what their concerns are, and I try to address them. And you can get very aggressive, or you can stay very simple. Um, a younger person who comes in who has just some very fine wrinkles, you might do some skin creams. You might offer some light resurfacing. You know, somebody who comes in who has coarse wrinkles, lax skin, muscle banding. There's not a lot of things you can do other than surgery. Everybody's different. Mm-hmm. How about Botox? How about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. You're injecting uh, a botulinum into people, uh, and it has effects on the nerves and things like that. Are there? Is it a good thing? Are there risks in it? Uh, are there low risks? Should we all be having it? Right, and this goes back to what Christine asked before, and it's a great question. I should have brought up the Botox before. What Botox does is it paralyzes muscles. So the botulinum toxin, it's very safe. I mean, it doesn't get absorbed. No one's ever gotten botulism from Botox. But what it does is it paralyzes the muscle that you inject it next to. And when you paralyze a muscle, like we talked about before, muscle activation causes wrinkles. So if you paralyze a muscle, those wrinkles go away. It's almost as soon as the muscle starts, starts relaxing, you see the improvement in the muscle right away and of the wrinkles right away. So if you inject Botox in a forehead, all the cross wrinkles, they just go away. And um, that would tell you that exercising those muscles probably would only cause wrinkles, not get rid of them. But Botox is very safe. I tell my patients that the good and bad of Botox is that it's temporary. So if you try it and you don't like it for whatever reason, it goes away in four months and there's no ramifications. But the biggest complication of Botox is that you're going to like it. And if you like it, then you're doing it every four months. How? Can you get addicted? Hopefully. (laughs) That's interesting. Now, speaking of that, you know, a lot of times right now, you went through all of your training uh, for a long time to do things like this. But I see now these clinics opening where people that have never done surgery are injecting Botox. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, I kind of know your thoughts on that, I'm guessing, but give us some thoughts. Well, I mean, my thoughts, I'm not completely against it. I mean, uh, Botox and injectables, it's not that difficult to do. It's much more of an aesthetic eye. I've seen some non-physician injectors who are fantastic. I've seen non-physician injectors who are much better than some physician injectors. Um, The laws are changing. California keeps updating what's allowed and what's not allowed. I think it's experience is what counts. You, you need to, you wouldn't go to somebody in their kitchen, but anybody who, uh, who has good training, if there's a physician monitor, just making sure the, uh, the office is sterile and the technique is good, I think it's safe. Now, you can probably get it done cheaper going to non-physician injectors, um, but I, I think that Sight unseen, if I didn't know who was doing it, I would say you're probably safest going to a physician. And not plastic surgeons. Uh, it could be dermatologists are excellent. Um, a lot of doctors can do it. Uh, but I think it's more the experience than the training. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's move into uh, some other things uh, where we're talking about people injecting fat cells into different parts of their body. Uh, right. Any Give us some thoughts on that. Right. So as I mentioned before, you know, one of the things that causes aging, um, I mean, makes when you age, one of the things that causes age-related changes in the face is a loss in volume. And that's very, very common. We've all seen, uh, you know, elderly people have very sunken cheeks and hollow eyes. And adding fat to these areas helps a lot in someone's appearance. It's not all about pulling. So transfer of fat, works great for that. Now, when you transfer fat, you have to make sure 
it's not a temporary thing. You, it's easy to just take fat out and squirt it someplace, but <laughs> very, very gently harvest fat from an area. Treat the fat cells nice so they stay alive. And you're doing a live transfer of fat cells from one part of your body to another, from, say, uh, the abdominal area to the face. You treat the fat cells nicely. You inject them slowly. You inject them in very small amounts because the idea is to have the little amounts of fat that you're putting in touch healthy tissue. So like a skin graft, it'll live. It'll survive. It'll get a blood supply. So if you take fat and inject a lot of it but in very small amounts at various levels, you can get some uh, permanent increase in volume. And there's also stem cells that are naturally in fat. And if you can preserve the fat, it'll have some stem cells in them, which will build more fat cells. And it is very helpful. Hmm. Interesting. It's a form of recycling within yourself. Absolutely. Do you ever take uh, fat from someone else or are there bodily immune response reactions or is it always from the person? Is there a fat bank? (laughs) (laughs) It's always the same person. person. Same person into themselves. All right. Wow. Christina. Couldn't, couldn't, I mean, but those are, those are uh, like tiny, minute portions you're talking about. Like, no, you, well, I'm saying, no, you can take quite a bit of fat. If, you know, if somebody's very, very thin, first of all, and they don't have any excess fat that you can get to in a manner that's um, how you can keep the fat cells alive, then it's not going to work. So you need to have a fat deposit someplace. And uh, in women, there's usually some around the knees or the inner thighs you can take out. But you can put in quite a bit. You just have to put it in very little bit at a time. So I can take, you know, 20 cc's worth of fat, um, you know, basically an ounce of fat, and put it in, but very little, inject very little bit at a time in each little area. Altogether, you're getting quite a, a bit of a, an increase, but you just can't put it all in one place. Well, maybe I can have a series of those instead of breast implants. <laughs> that has been tried. That injection into the breast is very controversial, probably more than we want to get into here, but um, most people won't do it because there's a problem with uh, cancer diagnosis. Mammograms don't look at fat injection really well. Oh, interesting. Wow. That's a great segue into uh, the breast part of our show. (laughs) It's not the breast, but the breast. I love it. (laughs) Right. The metaphor square breast will be our next uh, video. Let's talk about uh, augmentations and reductions and also uh, the different types of implants, what's good, what's bad, uh, some of the, the... uh, stories that are out there about this turning into that and having problems. So yeah, it's an open field for you, Howard. Well, let's talk about breast um, reduction. It's probably more straightforward. Um, breast reduction, I would say, are some of the happiest patients. And across the board, the biggest complaint they have is they wish they had done it sooner. So it's, a you know, women thinking who are uncomfortable they might have back pain. They might have a lot of neck pain, difficulty exercising. I think psychologically it's a big hurdle to get over, but once they decide to do it, they're almost universally very, very happy. Um, the trade-off, you get the size you want, the shape you want, the position you want. There are scars involved with the breast reduction. They're well-placed. They heal well, but you just have to understand that they're there, but so that maybe that's why it takes time for people to process it. But usually when they go forward with it, they're very, very happy. The results are very, very good. Um, breast augmentation, you're not really addressing a physical problem like pain like you are with the breast reduction. And um, it's a great operation for the people who choose to do it. Obviously, it's not everybody chooses to do it. And um, it some people are very accepting that other people get breast augmentations. Other people think it's frivolous. Um, again, you know, you have to respect people's own impressions. I see an awful lot of people who say, if my friends knew I was here, they'd kill me because they 
told them they were crazy when they did it. But uh, a very safe operation, and people are very happy who do it. Again, there are, like we talked about before, every operation has risks. Every operation has a healing period. Um, so you have to understand it. But if you're willing to go through those things and accept those risks, uh, they're usually very good results. Mm. What types of implants are there that uh, can be used safely? Well, there are still two types of implants, basically two flavors, like I like to say. There's a silicone gel and saline, and they're both very good. And for the decade after I started practice, the silicone gels were off the shelf. They weren't available for a while because they were being restudied as to their safety. So saline was the only thing we were using, and people were thrilled with them. The results are fantastic. Uh, now the silicone gel implants are back. They've been deemed safe by the FDA, and um, now we have both. And I would say many more patients are opting for the gel implants now. They're somewhat more natural feeling, although, like I say, the salines are very good, um, but they're very good. Do you put the do you put the scar in various places, say under the breast or in the axilla, the armpit? Uh, exactly. Are there there are options. Uh, the, there are three general options. That's uh, under the armpit, under the breast and the crease, and around the nipple. And depending upon the patient's anatomy and their preferences and the type of implant they want, the size implant they want, that's how we would choose. But all three of those locations are good. That's why those are the uh, um, options. I mean, clearly, you can make an incision anywhere to do the operation, but those three, op those three locations the results are very good. The scar is very well hidden and heals very well. So I have a question. I mean, ha have you uh, heard of the results or uh, what happens with women who might want the breast augmentation? And of course, you know, here they have um, a Ford object in their body and then they decide that they want to breastfeed later on in life, like when they get pregnant and have a child. Has there been any studies on how that might affect uh, breastfeeding or nursing? There have been endless studies to study that, and it's completely safe. Mm -hmm. uh, breast implants are put either behind the breast, between the breast and the chest muscle, mm -hmm. or even behind the muscle. So they're very separate from the ductal system of the breast and the milk production and the nipple. So even if you have the incision around the nipple, there's no reason to think that that woman couldn't breastfeed. Okay. And um, the type of implant you get, uh, a saline implant is, you know, ultimately very safe. There's nothing about it. Now, a silicone gel implant, they have demonstrated silicone molecules in breast milk and in patient the, that is being transferred, but it's not unsafe at all. All those studies have been done. And, you know, silicone is a very inert material. It's in a, a lot of the antacids we take are silicon-based. So just the fact that they can demonstrate a silicone molecule on there is not a bad thing. But uh, there's no reason why anybody who has a saline or a silicone gel implant couldn't nurse children, not at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. Is there any problem with the, uh, if you have an implant and there's a history of cancer, when you're doing studies like an MRI or a CT scan or just a, a normal breast screening exam, how does that uh, play out? Well, a breast implant will interfere somewhat with mammograms. And it's very well understood, and um, everybody has to know that. So if you have a strong family history of breast cancer, the you know getting a breast implant, that might be something you might consider. Now, having said that, um, mammographers are very, very good at overcoming that problem. They take an extra view when they do a mammogram. They have better technology now that they do mammograms. And Glenn, uh, an MRI absolutely is not impaired. So if there's any question, an MRI you can do of the breast to take a look at all the breast tissue. But there always will be a small amount of breast tissue blocked from view on a mammogram. But studies have been done and it has not demonstrated that women with implants are missing cancers. So it might be that they're more vigilant at doing self-exams. They get mammograms more regularly. So although it does block the breast tissue a little bit, 
And forevermore, the first line of the mammogram report is always breast implants in place, limiting, you know, the view. They do do a very good job reading around it. Let's segue into uh, breast cancer for a few moments. Somebody gets diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, And let's say it's a female at this point, although we know that males do get breast cancer. But let's focus on the female for a moment right now. Uh, When they have a diagnosis of cancer and they're going to have some kind of a mastectomy, a removal of the breast, usually done by a a general surgeon or a thoracic type of surgeon, someone that specializes in that, should these people be... consulting also with the plastic surgeon at the same time so that they can have potentially uh, a mastectomy and uh, an implant done right in the same procedure? Um, I think that they should consult with their general surgeon about that. Now, you know, when when a woman finds out the unfortunate news that she has a, a breast cancer, there's a lot to talk about. And there's even I believe, you know, getting rid of the cancer is more important at the moment than the, any reconstruction, and there's time for that. But they should talk to their general surgeons about the options just to deal with the cancer. Now, you know that the options are most often we can you can get by with uh, just a lumpectomy and not require reconstruction, and that may or may not require radiation or chemotherapy. But once a decision has been made to the best way to deal with the cancer, then you can say, okay, well, what about reconstruction? So if they do decide that a mastectomy is what the best treatment would be, they can do, uh, most general surgeons are very open to immediate reconstruction. And what that is, is that the uh, woman would have her mastectomy and at the same time of the mastectomy have a reconstruction. So when they awake, they never have a period where they are without a breast. Um, reconstruction, immediate reconstruction has improved over the years. Uh, it used to be that a mastectomy would include all of the skin and the nipple all the time. And um, they've been doing trials and they've realized they can save most of the skin, which makes a reconstruction a lot easier and the results a lot more natural. They've found that they can preserve the nipple a lot of the times, which makes uh, the result all that much better. So, uh, yes, I think um, most general surgeons are very, very open to having the woman consult with a plastic surgeon prior to their mastectomy and have the plastic surgeon do an immediate reconstruction if mastectomy is the answer. Going along that same uh, process, and thank you for that uh, answer. That was very good. I want to stay in this process a little and give you maybe a scenario scenario or two. Let's say you have a uh, a family history of a certain type of cancer and you've done the genetic studies and and someone's positive but they uh, you know the mother the grandmother and two sisters have had uh, cancer and you have the same gene but you haven't been diagnosed with anything do you think that uh, people should consider having mastectomies prophylactically and then reconstructive surgery it's a great question, and uh, the answer is yes. So if you have a very strong uh, family history of uh, breast cancer, a mother, grandmother, aunts, um, then they will check for that gene. And if you have the gene, I think, I don't know the exact statistics, but there's a very high likelihood that you're going to end up with the cancer of the breasts. And I think that a subcutaneous mastectomy, meaning for your listeners, Uh, A full mastectomy removes um, all the breast tissue, some of the skin, the nipple, um, and some lymph nodes. But if there's no cancer, all you need to do is remove the breast tissue. And in those cases, especially if you're doing both sides, um, reconstruction is very, very successful because they can spare a lot of the skin. Very often they can spare the nipple. and you can get a really nice shape with an implant reconstruction that will match bilaterally because you're doing both sides. And um, if that's the route that you want to take to do the prophylactic mastectomies, reconstruction is excellent. Do you work with uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists uh, when people have to make these kind of decisions? Do you suggest any uh, discussion with someone else, counseling uh, for a support group? 
Um, well, I mean, if somebody has a cancer diagnosis, there's a lot to think about, and there are support groups. Um, I don't require psychiatric evaluation before I'll do surgery on patients. Um, there might be the outlier who clearly is has some psychological issues, and that's probably a good idea for them. <laughs> well, I, Actually. Actually, uh, a question came up during all this um, from one of our listeners, and they're asking, and it's going back to breast augmentation, uh, yep. what about people that get encapsulation from implants? Okay, so for your listeners, um, whenever you put a foreign body uh, or a, a, in, in, in a human being in your body, um, the body will make a covering around that foreign body. It can be anything from a splinter that you get. Your body covers it and, and or a pacemaker or an artificial joint. So uh, usually the covering of these is not an issue because it covers it and protects it and that's fine. When you put a breast implant in, your body makes a covering around it, totally normal. Now what we need is for that covering to stay nice and soft and pliable because if the covering became hard or contract, then the breast implant, although it's well protected, is not soft and the result is not ideal. So if you put in an implant and the covering that your body makes gets firm or gets tight, that's called a capsular contracture. And it used to happen a lot. I mean, back in, say, in the 70s, when the, all the implants were silicone gel, the gel wasn't pure, and the covering around the gel was very flimsy, it was up to 7 out of 10, 70% of patients would get a capsular contracture. But now with the better gel, better coverings, somewhat better technique, um, significant capsular contractures are only 5% of mm. the patients you do. But still, if it's you, then it's 100%. And if it happens to you, it's um, a problem that we have to deal with. Now, if somebody gets a capsular contracture and you reoperate, you remove the scar tissue, generally there's 50% chance it won't come back. But sometimes there are patients that just form this hard, tight covering, and you can keep trying to improve it. But some in the very small percentage of patients, it's something that's insurmountable and maybe need the implant removed eventually. And it's no matter if it's the silicone or the saline because it's just this foreign object. Correct. Now, it's somewhat related to what happens during surgery. Um, again, if there's any infection, that'll cause a contracture. If there's bleeding that's not addressed at the time, that can cause a contracture. But yeah, it, it's sometimes, and we don't know why it happens. It could happen 30 years after placement of the implant, and it'll happen on one side and not the other. So it's not necessarily the patient. It's not the surgeon. It's not necessarily the implant. But why it happens 30 years later on one side and not the other on somebody is really unknown. Hmm. Do you, you do any uh, body sculpting? Uh, I know a lot of people, bodybuilders, uh, come in, you know, what they want their calves bigger or their arms bigger or things like that. Do you do body sculpting? I do more of the um, body smaller than the body bigger when it comes to body sculpting, liposuction. Um, I have done calf implants. I haven't done very many of them. Um, most of the body sculpting I do is liposuction, trying to reduce the size of abdomen, back, neck area, hips. You know, I I remember I went out, uh, I was having dinner with a plastic surgeon uh, one night, and we were at a restaurant, and every person that came in, this plastic surgeon said to me, that's my nose, That those are, <laughs> those are my breasts, or, or they would say, oh, I could fix that person. I could make that person look better. When you're walking on the street or you're around, are you always looking at people and saying, I could do that or I could fix that or I could make him or her better? Is that part um, of it? No, I compartmentalize very well. When I'm in the office, I, I see the problems. I have ideas. I, I address issues. But when I'm out, no, I'm a... I'm a normal fan of the human body like everybody else. And, you know, I guess 
occasionally if somebody has and knows that everybody else notices, I notice as well. But um, no, I don't criticize or think about the whole world as a pre-op as some plastic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great line. Have you uh, traveled around the world and done uh, work in other countries? I did. I spent a month in India just as I completed my training, and that was unbelievable, doing primarily cleft lips. Mm. What was that experience like? Tell us about that for a moment. Well, everybody should go to India. I mean, it's an amazing place. It changes your perspective tremendously. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the U.S., if you have a baby born in a hospital with a cleft lip, you have plastic surgeons falling all over themselves trying to fix it. Can you, before you go on, Howard, can you, uh, most, most of us know, but just to explain a cleft lip for a moment, just to those that may not. I think most people have seen, it's also called, you know, colloquial, colloquially a hair lip. Um, when there's a, the, a baby is born and the lip is not complete and it kind of goes up into their nose and, um, it happens with the same frequency in the U.S. as it does in India. It's not more common there. It's just that there's so many, there's less people and so many more plastic surgeons in the U.S. A baby is born and the cleft lip is fixed before they leave the hospital or certainly before they're um, three months old. And um, in India, there's an endless supply. And that was what was amazing. We would do these cleft lip surgeries and these clinics and we would sit there and they would a patient would walk in sit down they'd give them a little anesthesia fix their lips somebody lifts them up and then a few seconds later the next person's laying down and there was a line out the door and down the block and we would just fix them one after the other after the other it was it was uh nice that we knew we were doing good work but it was almost depressing because we were barely putting a dent in the line we were there for a month and the line was just as long when we left so it's a shame. Mm. But but isn't there more to to just fixing the lip? Because uh, I actually have a nephew that was born with that. Because the the opening inside the upper palate was also like I think a quarter inch apart. So he had like three or three to five surgeries. I do believe right right, right until he was like three years old. Exactly. There is a continuum. The simplest. Mm -hmm. Is just a cleft lip, but it can be a cleft in the alveolus or where the teeth are, and then the cleft can go all the way back and include the palate. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing for more of the lips because the palates and the alveolus are much more complicated surgeries that would require more post-op care. Um, and uh, they're, thank goodness, less common. The most common are the simple lips, but yes, it can include palates and alveolus and uh, they do require multiple, multiple surgeries. Mm. <sighs> There's so much to talk about here. Howard, uh, we always ask our special guests if they have a health tip that they can uh, share with our global viewers uh, based on your own journey and your own experiences and your own wisdom. Do you have something you would like to share with us today? Well, I think, you know, if I judge by most of the people I see and the biggest concern that people have, the best advice I can give you is one that I don't take. And I spend my weeks telling people to stay out of the sun and my weekends in the sun. So <laughs> I would say, and mostly it's the sun you get as a kid, really, that makes more difference than the sun you get as an adult. So I would tell parents to protect their kids from the sun. I would tell teenagers uh, not to do like I did and lay out with a reflector and uh, protect their skin because they'll appreciate that down the line. We covered uh, – thank you for that tip. It's a great tip, and I'm the same way as you. And I like the idea that you said I did my worst damage when I was a kid, so I don't feel as bad anymore. I also did the reflector in the baby oil and iodine <laughs> and things like that. We talked about with our last guest, uh, Lon Winston, who uh, – shared some of his experiences with skin cancers and a number of other things. Uh, we did cover a lot today, but I wonder if in your preparing for this uh, conversation, there was anything we haven't covered that you really wanted to get out there. I think you did a pretty good job, Glenn. There was nothing else I can think of. 
Are you just being kind? No, I'm not a kind person. You know that. Au <laughs> <laughs> contraire, monsieur. Uh, uh, Christina, any other thoughts for Howard? Um, you know, I do, since we just have a, a few more minutes here, which, which comes to, I would uh, assume, is uh, reconstructive surgery. Um, like yeah. if someone has a, a really bad burn as such, and they have to do a skin graft. Now, that's always mesmerized me that they, of course... I, I hear that they can only take it from the same individual. Is that correct? Yes, by and large. I mean, um, skin grafts, if you have a, an area that is missing skin and you need to replace it, you would take it from the same individual. Now, there are exceptions. If there's a burn victim who's lost a huge amount of skin and there's just not enough skin to borrow from, there are other, you can take grafts from, that are either uh, grown in a lab or from uh, that are artificial, and they're they're enough of a coverage for a long enough period of time that will get you through. Now it's not going to be the permanent graft, but you can put other grafts on. And these grafts will eventually reject, but they get you through the acute period until you can get enough of your own skin on there. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! So even artificial skin grafts, they can't even have that now cultured skin grafts they can now take for those unfortunate patients they can take some skin they can culture your own skin and grow your own skin in a dish and the pets do have that capability that's amazing so so where when they choose which part of the body to take this graft from does it also end up leaving a scar in that area yes i mean when you take a piece of skin you usually take it from the thigh mm -hmm. we know leave usually just a discolored area so we try to take it high enough so that it's covered in shorts um but yeah you, when you're taking a skin graft you're basically taking the top layer of skin and half of the dermis which is we might call the middle layer of the skin and if you take a nice skin graft with a good piece of dermis which you need to cover the area that needs a uh, piece of skin then there's never an that area you took the graft from is still protected, but when it heals, it will leave, because you're taking some of the pigment away, it'll leave a little bit of a discoloration. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Howard, how does someone pick a plastic surgeon? Well, the best way to pick a plastic surgeon is to find someone that you know a friend or a colleague recommends uh, that they know of that person. Um, you don't want to pick a plastic surgeon out of the phone book if anybody uses a phone book anymore or certainly on the internet, you know, it's difficult. Best to get a referral, best from your doctor or from a friend. Thank you, Howard. I would like to thank our very special guest, uh, Dr. Howard Gross, for sharing his wisdom, expertise, and journey with us. Uh, we covered a lot, but I know there's more, and we hope to have uh, you back on again, Howard. I would like to thank uh, all of my teachers and all of my healers who have helped me on my journey. And I look forward to looking into another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy each week with Christina as we explore. And until that time, I would like to thank you, Howard, and I wish all of our guests optimal health. <laughs> thank you so much, Howard. That was, it's been great. I mean, I am totally educated. Now I have to decide what I want done. <laughs> smile even if it causes wrinkles keep smiling uh, i know i don't yeah i i don't mind those wrinkles that's okay <laughs> thank you thank you howard um and we're also excited to announce that you can now access this show through itunes and when you are in itunes just look for yhtv nice and easy and simple and i do believe Almost all of the Magical Medical Tour episodes are right there for you to access. We invite you to join us live every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 Eastern Time for the Magical Medical Tour. And Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Followed every other week by our, with our new show, Following, oh, sorry, not following, <laughs> Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And until we meet again, namaste. Namaste.